how do you know? What validates it for you? You know, we, we see commercials all the time about products that receive like the good housekeeping seal of approval or, or maybe there's this product, uh, some food item that's been tested by some facility that's certified as non-GMO and they tell you it's healthy. How, how do you know? Do you just take a bite of it and say, okay, anything that tastes this bad has got to be good for you? How, how do you know? What, what does validate it for? You know, you, know, you go online or, or you watch commercials and just about every car on the market has won some type of J.D. Power and Associates Award. You know, everything's got some kind of award. I was in the store the other day looking for a, a toilet uh, flapper thing and all of them said longest lasting. Like every single brand, they're all the longest lasting. How do you know? What does validate it? for you? Do you have some blogger who you just trust and whatever he says about the gadget, okay, if he gives it his approval, it must be good? Is there some PC magazine that you look at? Is, is there some person who you just trust and if they tell you what does validate it for you? You know, that question has been an ancient question for the church. And the question is this, how do you know that someone's really saved? How do you know? And the early church had dealt with this question because the question comes, how do I know, how can I trust that they're really saved? How do I know that it wasn't just some emotional response, just a child trying to please a parent? How do I know that it, it wasn't just someone trying to fake it to win approval? How do I know that it's for real? The early church, it had to deal with this same question. And so as we begin the new year, we're launching into this new series. It's called Made to Move. It's really the second installment of the book of Acts. In the first nine chapters, you may remember that uh, God laid out the blueprints for a healthy church, and he established his church in Jerusalem. And God, he established his church in such a way that this church was growing. I mean, people are coming to faith daily, it says, not, not just on Sundays, but every single day of the week because the church is so fired up about this change that has taken place within them that they're going out and they're sharing the gospel every day of the week and people are coming to faith. Thousands of people coming to faith in Jerusalem. And so what happens is, is that there uh, begins to create some tension because the authority of the time, the leaders, the Romans, they're looking at it and they're thinking, this is not so good. And then the religious leaders, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, they're looking and they're thinking, this is not good. Because both of these groups feel their power slipping away. Because here's this church that's exploding. And so what happens is persecution. They team up and they begin to persecute the church. And so... We see how ugly it gets. There's imprisonments, there's threats, it's just ugly, things are going from bad to worse, and then it really culminates with this guy, Stephen. Stephen wasn't an apostle or anything, he's just a faithful guy, and he's out there, he's preaching one day, and he gets these Pharisees so angry, so upset, that they are just fuming and frothing, and they stone Stephen to death. And after he dies, then they begin to go around from house to house to house, pulling out Christians, dragging them out, and killing them. And so this forces the church to move. 
They have to move out of Jerusalem throughout all of Judea into the northern province of Samaria. And some even go further than that, even north of that, that's into Syria. But here's the thing about the church. God designed his church to move. God made his church to move. The church is not just a building that sits still. That's not the church. The church is a people who engage culture, who meet other people. So This is not like Old Testament times when the holy place or the holy of holies was some location. Where in order to get into the temple, you've got to be clean and you've got to meet the standards. And this is just for some people. No, no. God hasn't made the church like that at all. The church isn't a building. The church is its people. There is no altar in the New Testament church. Okay? There's, there's nothing special about this building or this stage. There's no altar. That, that's all Old Testament stuff. No, what makes this place special is us. And we, because we, we bring the power of God and the force of God and the authority of God into every place we go. Because God is now with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the church. And he's made his church to move, to gather together, to study, to be strengthened, to be equipped, and then to scatter out, to move, and to win people for Jesus every day of the week. This is how God has designed his church. And so what's happening in the book of Acts is the church is moving and people are coming to faith. But for some in the church, they're looking at who's coming to faith and now they begin to have a problem. Because, you know, it was one thing when other Jewish people were coming to faith and that was okay. And then when Grecian Jews, who they had other culture and stuff, but they still kind of adopted the Jewish practices, when they came to faith, there was a bit of a challenge, but it was still okay. They were able to get by that. But now something, as we enter Acts 10 through 12, something else begins to take place, and that is Gentiles are coming to faith. And for the church, for some in the church, these are the wrong kind of people, you know, and this upsets everything because... It's one thing if Jewish people are coming to faith, but Gentiles, why would God want to bother with them? How can we know that they're really saved? This is what's taking place. I want you to see it. Go ahead, turn in your Bibles, beginning in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Acts 10, verses 1 through 8. And this is where the church first begins to evangelize Gentiles. And the problems that that will bring. So let's check it out. Acts 10, 1 through, 8, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here's Cornelius. He's a centurion stationed in Caesarea. As a centurion, that means that he's in charge of a troop of over 100 people. And he's involved in the Italian cohort. That means he's involved in this larger battalion of people. And he's stationed in Caesarea. There's two Caesareas um, at this time. This is the one that's located still in Judea. It's the Roman administrative center in Judea. And so this is where Cornelius is stationed. Most Romans, Cornelius was a Roman, most Romans were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods, but not Cornelius. Cornelius chose to worship the one true God, the God of the Jews. He wasn't a Christian yet, but he's a seeker. And you can picture this tough military commander who wore his scars like badges, but his greatest badge of all was his commitment, his, his fear of the one true God. And so God honored this Roman's uh, devotion, and he told him, hey, you need to go get Peter. you get, you got to send some people to Joppa. you got to get Peter. I want you to hear from Peter. And, you know, just like a well-trained soldier, Cornelius, he doesn't ask any questions. He just does exactly what the angel tells him to do, and he sent for Peter. But as you continue to read the story, God seemed to know that Peter was going to need a little bit more convincing than Cornelius. So as Cornelius' men were making their trip to Joppa to go get Peter, Peter, he goes up on a roof to pray. And as Peter is praying, this, this story gets really interesting. Peter's up there, he's, he's praying, and as he's praying, he starts to get hungry. His stomach starts growling, and he can smell the food that Simon's wife is making, and he's getting hungry. And as he's getting hungry, this incredible thing happens. He finds himself in a trance, and he sees something like a sheet come down from heaven with all of these animals on it. But these animals are the animals that the Gentiles would eat. And he's, he's looking at it, he's hungry, but he doesn't know what to make of this. And then he hears a voice and it says, Peter, it's okay, go ahead and eat. And Peter, he responds like any good Jewish person would. He says, by no means, Lord, there's no way, Lord. I know this must be some type of test. There's no way that I'm eating all that unclean food that all the Gentiles would eat. I'm not doing that. This can't be right. Because you see, Peter, he's been taught his whole life that good Jews, they don't, they don't eat those animals. That those animals are never on the menu. See, it would be kind of like for us, like trying to think about eating like a dog or a cat. But for them, it, for, for Peter, it's even worse than that, though, because just to eat it, that also involves his allegiance to God. And so he's saying, you know, not only is it not, it wouldn't even be appetizing to him because he's been told, hey, don't, don't eat that stuff. No one good eats that. And then if you were to eat it, this kind of breaks your allegiance to God. And so Peter, he's saying, there's no way that this can't be right. Because these are filthy, disgusting pagans who eat that kind of stuff. I don't want anything to do with that, and I don't want anything to do with them. See, this had been ingrained in Peter. 
since childhood. It, it, it was ingrained in every good Jew that you are better than those Gentiles. That they are idol worshipers. They are polytheistic. They offer their bodies to idols. They are immoral. Their practices are things you don't even want to think about. They're so evil. They are unclean. Okay, this is what was taught in the Jewish Mishnah. Let, let me read a little bit to you. This, is, this was added to the Old Testament, okay? That every Gentile so soon as born was to be regarded as unclean. You must not grant aid to a Gentile mother in her hour of need or nourishment to her baby in order that that child might be brought up for idolatry. It was not safe to leave cattle in their charge to allow women to nurse infants or their physicians to attend the sick, nor walk in their company. They and theirs are defiled, their houses unclean as containing idols or things dedicated to idols, their feasts, their joyous occasions, their very contact is polluted by idolatry and there was no security. If a heathen was left alone in a room, he would defile the wine or meat on the table or oil and wheat in the store, milk drawn by a heathen. If a Jew had not been present to watch it, bread and oil prepared by them were unlawful. Their wine is wholly defiled. The mere touch of a heathen polluted the whole cask. Yes, even to put one's nose to the heathen's wine is strict, strictly prohibited. Do, do you get the idea? Do you see the thinking that every Jew was raised with? These are evil, unclean people. You don't even want to be in contact with them. See, this was the systematic prejudice that the Jews were taught. This is what they lived with. See, God had put restrictions in the Old Testament about how the Jewish people were to live. And, and and when they first got these restrictions, what the Jewish people did is they said, no, no, we don't want the restrictions. We want to live like the Gentiles. And that was bad. And then sometime later, Judaism, they begin to add all this other stuff to it. And instead now of trying to become like the Gentiles, now they elevate themselves to a place of superiority over the Gentiles. And they look down at the Gentiles and they say, we don't want anything to do with them. We're so much better than they are. Those people are evil. They are unclean. But see, the purpose of the restrictions that God had put was so that the people of God could be a light to the Gentiles. That they were to be the example. That they weren't supposed to look down their noses or prop themselves up and think themselves better. But they were to be a light to win the Gentiles. They missed the purpose of the law. But now, God, he's about to just fling wide his doors of grace and expose the legalism that these Jewish people had lived with for so long. And as this happens, as, as this voice tells Peter, hey, go ahead, you can eat. And Peter says, no way. Then Peter, he hears the voice again. And this time the voice says, hey, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. It's okay, you can eat. And Peter, he has this conversation. He keeps protesting. He's saying, no way. I cannot eat that stuff. The Bible says that he heard the voice three times. The three times this voice just keeps telling Peter, it's okay, Peter. I've made it clean. You can eat it. And Peter keeps saying, no, this has got to be some kind of test. I know I can't eat that because that's Gentile food. Finally, 
the sheep, the animals is just taken away. And Peter is sitting there trying to make sense of what happened. Now, if you know Peter's life, you know that he's been through a lot. He's seen a lot. I mean, he's been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen Jesus and Moses and all that crazy stuff. He's seen Jesus walk on water. He himself has walked on water for a little bit. He's seen miracles. He's seen all kinds of stuff. And now, Peter, he's seen this vision, and this just blew him away. This one blew every circuit in his head. He couldn't make sense of it. He's sitting there dumbfounded. Like all that other stuff, somehow I could figure that out. But this, this makes no sense. How in the world could God be telling me to eat food that Gentiles would eat? This has got to be wrong. Something is wrong here. How many times does God have to expose our prejudices before we realize that all people are equal before him? How many times does God have to show our prejudices until we realize that all people carry the Imago Dei, that we are all created in the image of God? This is what was happening for the Jewish people. that They needed to wake up and open their eyes to, to realize that, hey, God has made us one people. We all bear God's image. They need saving just like you did. And so as Peter is wrestling through all of this, Cornelius' men, they finally show up. They reach Simon's house in Joppa, and they invite Peter to go back to Cornelius' house. And then it dawns on Peter. Then he gets it. It wasn't simply about the animals that he's allowed to eat. It's also that Gentiles need to be saved. And Peter gets it, and it's beautiful. Peter treats these men like friends. He says, hey, come on in. It's not even his house, and he's inviting them in. And then he leaves with them, and he goes to Cornelius. And as he enters Cornelius' house, here's Cornelius, this tough military commander. And he bows down on the floor, face down, bowing to Peter. And here's how you know Peter gets it, because Peter looks at Cornelius, and he says, hey, Cornelius, stand up. I'm a man just like you. Stand up. And then Peter, he just shared the gospel to the Gentiles. He began telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. And all of these Gentiles get saved. And it's a beautiful scene. You have all these people getting saved. The Holy Spirit comes and these Gentile believers begin to speak in tongues just like the Jews when they first got saved in Jerusalem. And so Peter, he's just overwhelmed. He's excited. He's on cloud nine. This is so exciting. All these new believers. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he meets the church there. But the church has already gotten word as to what's happened. And instead of being excited, I want you to see what happens. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Do you see it? 
the church hears what happened with Peter. And the church is angry. They're not happy. They're not rejoicing that all these people were saved. The church is mad. You know, everything was great when God was saving other Jews, when he was saving people like them, but now God is using Peter to reach Gentiles. And for the church, it wasn't immediately good news. It was, it was scary news. It was news they weren't sure they could trust. See, from the Jewish believer's perspective, these Gentiles, they were always kept outside the camp. Gentiles were always kept away at a distance. You don't associate with Gentiles. You don't have anything to do with Gentiles. You start hanging around Gentiles, you're going to become unclean. You can't worship. There's all these rules. There's regulations. Because, hey, they could then not go into the temple. Because at that point in the Old Testament, God designed it that, hey, this was holy. And you can't bring in unholy into this place. But the apostles, they missed something in Jesus' ministry. They missed something in his life and ministry. There was this lesson that they didn't seem to get because I think they were blinded by their own prejudices. And that is, as Jesus went about his ministry and when Jesus touched the leper, as as Jesus went and he touched the bleeding woman and he touched the dead girl, every good Jew watching was saying, no, no, Jesus, don't touch the leper. Jesus, Jesus, don't touch the bleeding woman. Jesus, don't touch the dead girl. If you touch them, you'll be unclean. And you can imagine the scene that Jesus is there, and he's going, and he's going to touch the leper. And every Jew there, they're, they're gasping, they're holding their breath. They're saying, Jesus, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll be unclean. You touch the leper. You touch the bleeding woman. You touch the dead girl. You'll be unclean. But Jesus persisted, and he touched them. And then this amazing thing happened. Jesus wasn't unclean. They were made clean. And now, here, they see Peter. And they're saying, Peter, don't go to the unclean Gentiles. Peter, don't eat with them. Peter, if you eat with the Gentiles, you'll be unclean. Don't do it, Peter. And Peter eats with them. And instead of Peter becoming unclean, the Gentiles are made clean. They're safe. This is what happens. See, our God is big enough that he can confront our sin he can take our sin and he is not polluted by our sin rather we are made clean and they didn't get it so jesus he went to the dirty he went to the sick he went to the unclean and he wasn't made he wasn't polluted rather he made them clean And this was the lesson that the the Jewish church, these early Christians, they didn't get. See, God has now made his church to move. He's made his church to move because we now take the power and the presence of God with us when we interact with people. It's not that this place is somehow holy. No, the holiness of God now resides within us. 
So when we go and we impact people and we talk to people, we can take the gospel to people who don't look like us. We can take the gospel to people who worship other gods. We can take the gospel to people who speak different languages, to people who are covered in tattoos and piercings, to people who wear trench coats and army boots. We can take the gospel to people of different political parties, and it's okay. We're not going to become, see, the church looks at that, and sometimes the church says, no, 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 don't go associating with them. They will corrupt you. <laughs> The great thing about the power and the presence of God is the hope is not that we will be corrupted by them, but rather they will be saved. This is the message of the gospel, that now you're empowered to go live out through the power of Jesus. The Holy Spirit resides within you. You don't become unclean. The hope is they are made clean. And the church gathers together And they hear Peter explain this, explain what happened to these Gentiles. And again, a beautiful scene takes place because the church hears Peter and they respond and they get excited. They they don't stay angry, they don't stay mad, they grow. And they're excited and they, they get just pumped up. Okay, now there's new Gentile believers, this is good. Because this is what a transformational church does. A church on the move, it has a missionary mentality. A church on the move has a missionary mentality to reach people. All kinds of people for Jesus. It goes out every week, every day to share the gospel. And as Peter explained, hey, these Gentiles are being saved, the church rejoiced. Meanwhile, something else begins to take place at the same time. I want you to see it. Look at chapter 11, verses 19 through 24. Chapter 11, verses 19 through 24. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Okay, so Antioch is located in Syria. It's north of Samaria. The the church has scattered so far that they're up into Antioch at this point. And they're sharing the gospel as they go, as they travel. But did you notice they're only sharing the gospel to Jews? Okay, They they still don't believe, even after they're scattered. Hey, we're not going to share it with Gentiles. We're just trying to find some Jews to share the gospel with. And then there's some guys, they just get so excited, they can't keep it in. Because you know, the thing about good news is, is it just has to get out. And so they find themselves in Antioch. They probably can't find any Jews in Antioch, and so they just start sharing the gospel to Gentiles because, hey, the good news has to get out. And so then Gentiles in Antioch begin coming to faith, 
and the church in Jerusalem gets word of it, and they think, can this be trusted? Can this be real? Can, can, can the church really have expanded into Gentile territory, Antioch? We got to check this out. We got to investigate this. We got to find out if they are for real, if this is legit, if they're really saved. And they think to themselves, you know who we'll send? We'll, 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 we'll send uh, Barnabas. He's from Cyprus anyway. These are kind of his people, so we'll send him up there, and he can sort everything out. After all, he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's a good man. People trust him. People like him. He can sort this out. He can investigate this and report on this for us. And so Barnabas arrives, and he has to discern. He has to report back, is this legit? Are these people really saved? And so what do you look for? I mean, how can you tell how do you convince someone that you're a Christian Barnabas he's seen plenty of new people come to faith he's seen new believers and what they do and what it looks like and so Barnabas knows Barnabas can tell and you know what Barnabas saw you know one of the first markers of a genuine relationship with Jesus is evangelism it's evangelism Barnabas knows that, hey, this is legit because he sees them sharing the gospel with other people. Because this is how it happens. You're you're messed up. You've got issues. You've got sin. You're confronted with your sin. You're broken by your sin because you realize how it separates you from God. And then you encounter the risen Christ And he restores you and he makes you whole and he forms that relationship with you. He makes you alive when you were spiritually dead and you can't help but you just have to go tell someone. Good news has to get out. You have to go tell it. And so you go back to those guys and girls you were hanging out with before and you tell them, hey, this is what God has done in my life. Here's what's happened. So this begins to take place. There's this missionary mindset, this mentality, I have to tell the good news of what Jesus has done. This is what a transformational church does. And so this is what they're doing. The first thing that happens in your life, when your life is changed by Jesus, is you can't wait to find your friends and family and tell them what's happened. You see that pattern throughout the scriptures. People are saved. What do they do? They go tell people. They, they can't, you can't keep that type of good news in. You just can't hold it, hold it in. You have to go tell people. And so when Barnabas comes and he sees that these people are sharing the gospel, it meant that they had something to say. It meant that they had some good news to tell. I mean, if you want to know if somebody is saved or not, that's the first place you look. Do these people share the gospel? And if they have nothing to say, if they don't share the gospel, that means they probably have nothing to say. Because this type of good news, that you can be made whole with the creator of the universe, well, you're just going to tell somebody that, that kind of information. You just can't keep quiet. And so the numbers of people, they're growing. They're growing daily. The church here in Antioch is exploding. People are coming to faith. Barnabas, he didn't need to train these people in evangelism. No, they, they, they just inherently knew, hey, this news is so good, I've got to tell people. They didn't need training for that. But as all these new people are coming and they're going and they're sharing the gospel with more people, he knows, hey, I need to train these people. 
but I, th- this is too many people for me to train at once. I've got to get help. And so he goes a little ways further north to Tarsus, and he finds his old friend Saul, and he recruits Saul to come back to help really lead these people. And for the next year, Barnabas and Saul taught these Gentiles in Antioch what it meant to love God what the Old Testament scriptures meant and how they pointed to God and how they're now supposed to live, what it meant to be a good husband, a good wife, what it meant to train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they just explained the scriptures to them. See, a church on the move has vibrant leadership. A church on the move has vibrant leadership, leaders who will call you to go and to do what God has made you to do, leaders who will faithfully explain the scriptures to you and teach you clearly what God is saying in his word. Leaders who will recruit and go and ask for help when they need help. Leaders who don't think that they have to do it all on their own, but leaders who are humble enough to say, I can't do this alone. This is what vibrant leadership looks like, and this is the kind of leadership that was taking place in the book of Acts with this church on the move. And so as this church is growing in Antioch, the people in Antioch, the other Gentiles, they they see these believers, and they begin to poke and make fun of them, and they began to call them Christians. It was a put-down at first. It was a derogatory term. It, it meant little Christ. And you can almost hear them jeering, can't you? Oh, look at you. you. You're just trying to be like Jesus. You're just a Christian. Well, the church embraced that term, and we've worn it as a badge ever since, that yes, we are imitators of Christ, that we are called to be conformed into his image. This is not a bad thing. This is a very glorious thing. But the persecution just doesn't stop, and it's not just the jeers and everything taking place in Antioch. Back in Jerusalem, things were getting worse for the apostles, for the believers who had stayed in Jerusalem. King Herod, the grandson of um, Herod the Great, the one who was around when Jesus was born, this, this King Herod, Herod Agrippa I, he turned killing Christians into a sport, okay? So he was just trying to win approval of the Roman emperors, uh, Caligula and then Claudius. And he had already had James, the brother of John, executed. And now he's arrested Peter. And he intends to kill Peter as well, but he arrests him during a festival. And it's, it's the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and, and he can't execute him di- during this week-long feast, so he's waiting for the feast to be over. And I want you to see the story. The, the story, it, it, um, it's glorious and it's somewhat amusing at the same time. Look at Acts 12, 5 through 19. Acts 12, 5 through 19. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries stood before the door who were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. 
And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought them out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Isn't that amazing? That's just incredible. The church gathers together. They had this all-night prayer meeting for Peter. They, they already know what's happened to, to John's brother, so they gather. They have this all-night prayer meeting for Peter, and he's miraculously freed. I mean, the angel comes, and, and he leads them, and he's telling them, and he's talking to them, and he's telling them what to do. And Peter thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's in the middle of a dream, and he can't even believe it. And then finally, when the angel leaves, it's only at that moment that Peter comes to himself and says, Oh, this, this is for real. <laughs> like, this is actually happening. And he says, Well, I should go to Mary's house. And he goes there, and then it's almost like, I mean, I don't know why, but I, I kind of feel like I'm the kid again watching a Nick at Night rerun of Mary Tyler Moore. And here's this Rhoda lady who comes to answer the gate. <laughs> And gets so excited that it's Peter and just leaves Peter standing there, runs back in, tells the people who are praying. They're actually praying for Peter. They've been praying all night for Peter. Peter's at the gate. And they say, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. You are crazy. You must have saw a ghost. Okay, you saw a ghost and she's the one who's crazy. Okay, this is what they rationalize. It must be a ghost. You're crazy. But has that ever happened to you? Where you pray for something really hard. You're committed to praying. But at the same time, you don't even really believe that it could happen. You're praying and you're committed to praying, but you kind of doubt. I don't know if God could do this. I don't know if God will do this. This is what the church is doing. They're, they're praying. 
They've been praying all night. This is not some casual little prayer meeting. Let's just say a quick prayer and go home. No, they gather together. They pray all night long. But there's still that doubt. Could God really do that? And then they hear Peter's there, and they rationalize, oh, no, he's probably died. Maybe you're seeing his angel or something. They may not believe that God is actually going to come through on this, but this church knows where their strength comes from. And I might rag on them a little bit, but, but be sure to notice this. This was not the last resort for the church. Prayer was their immediate first response. And this is not some casual little prayer meaning, hey, can you say a quick prayer for Peter? This is, we're going to gather together and we're going to spend all night praying together for Peter. This is intense prayer. A church on the move finds her strength through prayerful dependence. A church on the move finds her strength through prayerful dependence. This church realized that apart from God, we can do nothing. Apart from God, we can do nothing. We can't go save those Gentiles. We can't like, get Peter released from prison. We can do nothing. We can't make dead people spiritually alive. We can do nothing. Not just some things we can do. Nothing of any spiritual, eternal, lasting significance apart from God. The church realizes this and they pray. As we enter into this second scene in the book of Acts, chapters 10 through 12, there's, there's one theme that emerges from these chapters, and it's God's protection. Did you see that this morning? His protection from their own prejudices so that the gospel could continue to advance, so that more people could be reached. Protection as the gospel travels to new places for people who are sharing the gospel. Protection from evil leaders and from jeering opponents who would seek to stomp out the gospel. See, as God continues to protect his people, his church, he calls us to continue to move, to go into places that are sometimes hard to people who we sometimes would rather keep our distance from. But there's the promise of God that he protects us in going. And this is what he's called us to do. This is the mission. This is who we are. We're a church on the move, meant to scatter and then to gather back, to be strengthened and to be equipped here so that we can be effective out there. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to share your gospel. And God, as you have designed this church, your church, to move, that you, you have given us the power of your Holy Spirit within us, that we are not made unclean by situations and people that we walk into, but rather the hope is that we can reach some and they will be saved. So God, with boldness, with passion, with zeal. God, because we're excited about what you've done for us, this is the message of our lives. We have nothing else to say, really. And good news can't be kept. We must share. So God, help us to share it well this week. Will you add to our number this week with people um, who come to faith in you because of our obedience? We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.